Welcome back. It's another episode of Unwritten Rules, an Iowa Cubs podcast. I'm your host, Alex Cohen, and to listen to all past, present, and future episodes, make sure you subscribe to Unwritten Rules on Spotify, Apple, and Google Podcasts, as well as Amazon Music, or just check us out online at iowacubs.com. Today is a very special episode. Now, most of you know we air every Tuesday. However, this being released on Thursday, April 15th, it's Jackie Robinson Day. And we're honored to have former Iowa Cub, Chicago Cub, Ivy League scholar, and current Marquee Network talent, ESPN talent, Doug Glanville, join us. During this episode, not only are we going to talk about Doug's journey in baseball and his time with the Iowa Cubs, we are also going to dive a little bit deeper and talk about the importance of Jackie Robinson's legacy and where our culture of baseball, both professionally and from an amateur standpoint, stands today. Doug, welcome to Unwritten Rules. Thank you for taking the time to talk with us. How you doing today? I'm great, Alex. It's uh, it's great to be back, taking me back to some memories of uh, West Des Moines, you know, hanging out there and making the commute to Sec Taylor Stadium. Uh, I don't know, is Nacho Obama still around there? You know, I remember that. I have not, I have not been, you know, I'm not quite on like my, my baseball diet yet. So may, may, maybe in due time, I'll check it out. <laughs> No, it's great to be here, Alex. So uh, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it, Doug. So April 15th, 2021, Jackie Robinson Day. Doug, for our listeners, can you talk a little bit about your background and Jackie Robinson Day, and in particular, what Jackie Robinson means to you? Well, I'll tell you, you know, it's it's evolved in my life as I've hit different stages of of my experiences. You know, obviously growing up, in a town, Teaneck, New Jersey, a town that actually voluntarily desegregated in the 60s. And so that set the tone for the sensibility around our community that we wanted to work together for different walks of life. And and it was a a real commitment across creed, religion, faith, uh, color, whatever it was. So we had that environment growing up and baseball was very centered. It was centering around us learning how to work together as a team. So our teams were very diverse and often we played against towns that weren't very diverse, that didn't really like us very much. So I started to learn earlier on about his story about being a pioneer. And my parents who both were in education, my father ultimately went into psychiatry. They instilled a lot about history. They wanted to make sure we understood where we came from. And Jackie Robinson was really central to that because of our love of baseball. So, you know, as I got older, and I started to see his story play out in life and then really going deeper in the game. And then, of course, later as a husband, as a parent, his story always took different shapes, but always still re- remained relevant uh, front and center in our life. And, of course, the, the experience in, in America as a black man. And, my, my, for example, my son's middle name is Robinson. So that sort of sums up you know, wow. uh, what, you know, what he, uh, he meant. I've had a, the great fortune of getting to know Sharon Robinson, his daughter, from doing a program when I was with the Phillies and different projects along the way. And, you know, so, and what's been so powerful to see is it's almost like he was at the right time, but also had the forethought and foresight to see where we could go. And it was very aspirational. And you could see the center of his fight was about fairness and equality. He just said, hey, I want us to be first-class citizens like everyone else should be. And he fought for that very consistently through not only being the athlete and the pioneer he was, but also off the field, whether it's you know 
the first black executive chock full of nuts, whether he was a columnist. I mean, he never stopped. And, and there's a perception with Jackie that he was kind of quiet. He turned the other cheek only. He made a deal with Branch Rickey early on to say, okay, I'm not going to fight back for a little while, but then after like year two, three, I'm, I'm going to get after this. And okay. he did. Uh, and by then, as you mentioned, he was, you know, rookie of the year. He was just an incredible player also. So, uh, so watching him today and then seeing how our country is reckoning with race and grappling with a lot of challenges that are now on video and front and center, it's, uh, it shows that he was a person that really saw what could be possible and saw how important it is to, you know, have a free society for everyone. And once you uh, have discrimination and you keep other groups and you have all these things that are identity based that are negative for people, then we're, we're none of us are really free. You know, we all uh, we're falling short. And it's since we're working towards a more perfect union, uh, it's a work in progress always. And we have to you know guard it with vigilance. You talked about that relationship with Jackie Robinson to you evolving. Yeah, he debuted with the Brooklyn Dodgers in 1947, played till 1956. You were born a decade and a half later, and you look a lot younger than that, too. So credit to you. But when you first heard the name Jackie Robinson, you know, growing up in New Jersey, you talked about being in the one, you know, one of the first desegregated towns. You hear the name Jackie Robinson. How was that communicated to you? Well, you know, my mom was a teacher in junior high school and where I went and ultimately high school. So the books, you know, hit the books. And I remember getting a chance to read, you know, biographies and different stories about Jackie Robinson. And it was in conjunction with my mom who had a, a program on Saturdays to really work on self-esteem for, for black students because the curriculum often didn't celebrate our contributions as well as it should have. So Jackie Robinson was one of those stories. So whether it was Lewis Latimer or all these inventors that we didn't hear a lot about, we started to learn about Jackie Robinson because she saw the passion in her two sons about baseball. Mm -hmm. So it was a really natural flow. And, and when I was drafted, right before I was drafted, I went to a, an organization then called the African-American Athletics Association, which really doesn't exist anymore. I met Rachel Robinson there. And that was transformational for me because by then I was really versed in, uh, in his story. And it really helped me understand that this was a family story. This wasn't just Jackie by himself. His family was behind him. And as you know, Rachel Robinson, who's still alive today, nearly 50 years or after him, uh, you know, did so much to keep their family legacy around as did Sharon uh, and his son. So it, you know, so it, it's definitely, uh, became something that right away I knew that there was a connection here and there's something powerful about knowing you're not alone in this journey and that someone had walked before you and made certain sacrifices and that there is some pathway to consider uh, that that's a that's a good feeling because you feel like you you can walk with someone behind you so his entire legacy to you after his playing career and since then Jackie has made the hall of fame he has a day named after him. He has his jersey retired, <clears throat> excuse me, with every Major League Baseball team. He has a movie based around his life. Do you feel that the perception of his life since, you know, Jackie Robinson passed has been communicated properly? I think it's it's still, for, for want of certain depth to it, uh, there's no doubt that the general levels of experience, sort of if you chronologically look at his life, those have been laid out fairly well. But there is a effort at times to make him sort of palatable, you know, in sense of, okay, kind of there's a comfort we want to face. This is a really painful time in our country. 
Uh, and, and he was part of integrating the first major American institution. So the U.S. military wasn't even integrated when Jackie Robinson broke in. So this was not simple and, and easy. And there was a lot of hate and there was a lot of frustration. And there's no question that we're, we're careful about how we share that. So I think there's definitely some absence. Another part of it is, as I mentioned earlier, that the silent Jackie and the sort of, okay, just play ball, that really wasn't Jackie Robinson. <laughs> that wasn't the total picture. And you have to get a little uncomfortable to look into you know, him trying to form a first, you know, a, a black bank, you know, and him, all the things that he went through in Florida and the spring training and how the Dodgers went to Havana, Cuba in 1947. And they actually were more welcome in Cuba than they were in their own country, even after people had served in the war and all these things. So, you know, the, there's a lot of aspects of him that I think we would benefit from, from getting a more complete picture of Jackie Robinson's journey because it will help us be more informed about what we're actually facing today. It brings him into modernity, that there was times that he was disillusioned or in pain or wanting to just do something else and just protect his family and the threats. So those are important parts to, to share, even though he was generally very positive about equality and, and was worked on the ground, wrote letters to you know, presidents and candidates. I mean, he he fought tooth and nail. I mean, he debated Malcolm X, debated Martin Luther King. He wasn't just like, hey, I'm just going to do this. I'm just going to put on my cap and, and play right. baseball. And that's play it. Play baseball, you know, and and remember a lot of the civil rights, you know, Jackie Robinson broke in. Martin Luther King was like in college or something. No, he was, he came after him. So there was a lot of pioneers in the civil rights movement that looked to Jackie Robinson. So he, you know, the whole idea of kind of stick to sports, for example, is obviously thrown out the window with Jackie Robinson. And part of it was, there was really not much choice. If you were a, a black athlete or had a stage of any kind, that meant everything because you had to engage in the political arena. You had to, if you were going to try to make change, knowing that your experience is showing that our country isn't there yet. So we, I think it would be great to see more of a complete picture of Jackie. You know, I think it'd be tremendously uh, helpful and beneficial. When talking about that complete picture of Jackie, and I think now, I'm not saying people forget his athletic achievements, but that's certainly put on the back burner. You take a, a, a look at Jackie Robinson's baseball reference page. In nine seasons, six all-star appearances, one MVP, one rookie of the year, a 60 war, which uh, for, for our fans listening in, it's, it's a metric called wins above replacement. Uh, that is among the best per year in Major League Baseball history. Do you think people forget now, I mean, not only what Jackie Robinson was as a person, but how good of a baseball player he was just on the baseball level surface? Absolutely. Absolutely. And and he was great. Uh, he was great. And I think it is in that nine-year career you mentioned, there might have been two other players that had a, a larger war during that type of stretch. And he was relatively old, right? That's the other thing. Like I broke in at 25. He was like 28, 29 because he didn't get the chance, you know, and 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 he wasn't necessarily considered the, the best Negro League player, by the way. So he came in late and had these incredible years on the back end of his career. I mean, that just is remarkable uh, outside of what he was experiencing off the field and, and just, you know, fighting for his life literally and figuratively. So, um, so there's no doubt that that's something, for example, I'm, fortunate to be doing the game on ESPN tonight for the, the Reds Giants. And um, they'll be doing it this week. So with that, 
story, I want to kind of get back to like, this guy was a great player. You know, I mean, he, he played hard, he slid in, he's breaking up double plays. I mean, this guy was like everywhere on the field. Yeah. I mean, he's one of the most transcendent, not only figures, but athletes. I mean, you, you go into the story, he's one of the most profiled athletes in UCLA ever. And that's talking about such a, an academic and athletic institution. Uh, he was one of those guys who were any sport that he played, it could have been track and field, football, basketball, hockey. He picks up a stick, he's going to be an all-star. Well, you know what? He goes to UCLA. He go, he plays in Major League Baseball, as you said, at the age of 28 and is automatically, right away, one of the best players at baseball while going through what he did through with an organization like the Brooklyn Dodgers, and it's not like, with all due respect to the Cincinnati Reds, he didn't go to Cincinnati and have to deal with that. He went to the mecca of sports and the mecca of organizations, the Brooklyn Dodgers, and performed at that level. It's, I'm not sure if it's something that, that, that people don't think about, but unfortunately, the athletic achievements are put on the back burner. Do you think that, that, that there's a way to... To, to, to simplify that and, and communicate to the fans that not only was this player an activist, not only was, was Jackie Robinson transcendent of what he did to baseball in a social, you know, in a social standpoint, but also, man, he was an incredible baseball player. Yeah, and it would be great service to remind everyone uh, through what is sort of the mo modernity, right, the modern technology of just celebrating how great a player is. You just watch him. And he stood out, you know, even in the, you know, watching old footage, you just know that there's something magnetic about his style of play. And, and when you look at the data, the stats that just backs it up, his discipline at the play, his ability to make contact, you know, his speed, his pressure baseball, uh, you know, and he was a fantastic hitter. And, and then the Yankees were so dominant that that sometimes made it hard for him because Every the Brooklyn was always playing the Yankees in the World Series and, and getting knocked out every year until finally, <laughs> towards the end of the career, they finally beat them. And I, I love the interview on Ken Burns' special of Rachel Robinson. And she they asked her about the Yankees, and she says, Oh, those Yankees were just impossible. <laughs> so, so, so that was what kind of was tough. You can imagine today you're Mike Trout, right? And and you know he's not making the playoffs very often, but just imagine a Mike Trout making the playoffs every year and not getting past the first round or yeah. getting knocked out. It, it does have an unfair overshadowing. And Jackie was battling, in, like you said, in New York City for a town that had so much else going on, and uh, and he still excelled. So I hope that there's more to just express how great a player is. We're going to certainly try to do it in our in our broadcast, mm -hmm. but it, it you know you need to keep the foot on the accelerator because. While he's doing this other work, his day job was this, and he was great at it. And his night job never ended. Yeah. <laughs> so it was like a, it was being on as being a doctor on call twenty four hours a day, but but yet you know having a doctor and going to additional med school and being a professor. I mean, he he did it all. I would love to see Jackie Robinson in this era of baseball, where you know it is power, it is speed. You talk about the five tools and excitement to the game and letting the kids play with allowing Jackie to kind of lift the burden and just go out and play. I would love to see him in that era. Well, I'll tell you, you know, it, it reminds me of the challenge baseball faces right now. When you talk about the three true outcomes, right? Home run, strikeout, walk are so prevalent now. And you realize that Jackie Robinson doesn't really fit consistently in this era because 
he wasn't really this three outcome guy. He put the ball in play. He wasn't a big home run hitter. So what happens, you know, if, if you have a whole bunch of clone players that are all trying to launch the ball out of the ballpark for, for better or for worse, right? All or nothing. So that is a, a problem. And I think Robinson's style of play kind of points to what could be missing in our era today, why you could have this line-to-line excitement on both sides of the ball. You put the ball in play, you put pressure on in different ways, and you just show the athleticism of the players because there's constant action yeah. with the ball in play. We don't, we don't have that right now, even, with, even despite having these incredible athletes uh, with so much talent and ability. It's, it's a very different game from Jackie Robinson. Yeah, we don't see the, the 50 double, 30 stolen base guy anymore. I mean, it's either a guy who's hitting 50 homers and stealing 10 bags, or he's stealing 40 bags and hitting 10 home runs. It's a polar opposite game. And, and seeing Jackie Robinson in, in the launch era angle would be, would be certainly something to see. A thoughtful and poignant start to today's episode of Unwritten Rules, an Iowa Cobbs podcast. Remember to listen to all past and present episodes See the schedule of new episodes. Make sure you subscribe to Unwritten Rules, and you can do so on Spotify, Apple, and Google Podcasts, as well as Amazon Music, or check us out online at iowacubs.com. We are here with Doug Glanville, and Doug is right now sitting in uh, in Connecticut in his home, and we see the Glanville Cubs jersey in the back uh, as we sit on Zoom. And uh, Doug, I want to talk about your your baseball career starting from when you were a youth uh, and then coming up you know, through the minors and, and into the big leagues. When you were growing up, you know, players like Willie Mays, Hank Aaron, Frank Robinson, Bob Gibson, Ernie Banks were finishing their respective careers. And guys like Willie Stargell, Willie McCovey, Ricky Henderson, I mean, these are first ballot Hall of Famers, that are in their primes. Who were the guys that you looked up to growing up and saw on either TVs, magazines, and said, man, I, I want to do that, or man, I, could, I can do that? Well, you know, growing up in North Jersey, uh, I, I was a little bit of a rebel that I wasn't a Mets or Yankees fan per se. I went to their games, but the Phillies were kind of my first team. And that came about my brother, who's seven and a half plus years older, he kind of got me into the sports at a young age. So I was like, who has the coolest uniforms? <laughs> so, so I like the powder blue road unis of the Phillies and I started following them. So a lot of my connection to the game came through being a Phillies fan and then watching, you know, Mike Schmidt and Steve Carlton and Gary Maddox and Dave Cash, players like that, just sort of, you know, do what they did. And they were very good in the late you know, 70s and eight, ultimately 1980, they won it. So that kind of started it and that's, but it also connected to how I became a Cubs fan because the, I don't know if you remember Dallas Green going over to Chicago and then he traded for all these Phillies. So they, yeah. they called them Phillies West. So the Cubs had, you know, uh, you know, I, all these cats, right? Keith Moreland and, and Bob, Bob Dernier and Sam, yeah. right. All those cats. right? So, so I was like, Oh, this is cool. This is like another Phillies team. So that's how I got, I got connected. So looking to those, figures uh, Gary Maddox was kind of you know my favorite that I connected with because I was an outfielder and fortunately you know it's so cool because Gary came to my wedding like years later uh when, when I played in Philly so that was really an honor but that that's where I started to look and then I realized that behind their story of you know being a major league player and loving their game I started to understand as I got to know them that they had this other walk that they were dealing with trying to figure out you know life after the game or how to really engage on challenging topics of social importance. 
And I learned a lot from talking to them, whether Joe Morgan or, uh, you know, players that had done it before. And I got to know Dick Allen, for example, who really would talk a lot about those experiences. So mentorship is so important in baseball and how you're connected to its history. And some of it is baseball related and statistical and fandom based, but the others are social, just how people have endured certain challenges that you experienced and were trying to create context around. Uh, so those are kind of ways that I saw the game as you know, much bigger than sort of on the field. And that's why Jackie Robinson and those figures endure because you realize that some of the challenges they were taking on, it's a work in progress. Well, and now that process has kind of come full circle because you, you're not playing anymore, but you're doing so much stuff in baseball, both on ESPN and with the Marquee Network. And then you're also a professor at UConn, so you go into academia. Has that kind of gone full circle? Do you have collegiate athletes or you know, players of professional baseball reaching out to you and picking your brain of what you had to go through, what you saw others have to go through as a player who grew up on the East Coast or going to an Ivy League school, you know, a predominantly Caucasian school playing baseball there, becoming a first-round draft pick there, and what you had to deal with coming up and ultimately becoming a professional baseball player. Definitely. I, I felt a strong obligation in certain ways, but also a responsibility that we pay it forward and pay it backwards. You know, you, you wanted to honor that history and you think about what people went through to give you certain opportunities, whether, you know, your parents or other players. And I felt strongly that if I had something to impart and share and, and knowing that it's still reciprocal because I learned from my students as much as I teach, then I, I wanted to do that. And I loved teaching. I loved teaching and my mom taught all through my junior high and high school. So it was part of growing up. And I knew that that was a chance to connect with the next generation. I did it as a player, as I became the union rep and yeah. all these things. And I passed it down, you know, Jimmy Rollins and players that came after me. But then once I was out of the game, I tried to stay around the game in the media world, but also in a sort of academic sense. So that, yeah, it's very important to me. And I also see very strong connections and I'm very passionate about sports serve as a great sort of conduit to these social conversations and change, you know, because if you're an athlete, if you're a professional athlete, particularly, and you've had a lifetime in the game, you are surrounded by learning how to work as a teammate to many different kinds of people. You're surrounded by that consistently and you find a way to get it done. You also are in an environment where you are in an equitable balance, a place of balance, because you have rules that you have to uphold. You have the rules that you have to follow. You have, a sense that it has to be fair for both sides, both teams. And when you see that consistently, uh, when one rule is slightly bent, people are like fired up, like, no, it's got to be fair. That fairness and, and that sense of teamwork are great examples for larger society. So I just think sports serves as a great way in, a great segue into these conversations and, and quite frankly, changes. Absolutely. Your era of baseball, uh, you played collegially at Penn. You in Philadelphia, you get drafted 12th overall by the Cubs in 1991. Let's go back to 1991. The overall number one overall pick that year, Brian Taylor, African-American. Three other players in that draft, top 15 overall, Demetri Young, Joey Hamilton, Cliff Floyd, African-American. At that time, I would say arguably, but it's not even that arguably, the two most polarizing, exciting players in Major League Baseball, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, Barry Bonds and Ken Griffey Jr., both African-American. 
What was it like for you playing professional baseball, coming up through professional baseball in that era? Well, you know, it was, I felt it was a time where you kind of be seen, not heard still as a rookie. So there was a little bit of like, okay, I got to feel this out, do your job, head down. I fortunately had someone like Sean Dunstan. He was all, you know, became a, a real good mentor and he was definitely not one of those see you not heard he was yeah. talking all the time <laughs> yeah. and Sean was great because he kind of said what you were thinking a lot and couldn't say and and so that was the environment and the Cubs they were kind of a you know they were a different group they were kind of a bunch of old heads so they were old school and you really felt like you had to kind of watch where you know Randall K Myers and these cats like yeah. with his grenades in his locker and stuff so so and, you know Rhino so I, I knew that I, tr I treaded lightly. I definitely treaded lightly, but it was still a joy because these are, you know, when you come up, you're around players you watched as a kid and now all of a sudden you're competing with and against them. I was still caught in the honor of that. And I felt that that was enough to give me that motivation to, to really work at my craft and, and get better. And there was a lot of mentors that along the way helped. I remember Mike Morgan, a pitcher, when I got sent down after having a great spring, he pulled me aside and says, look, you deserve to be here. You will be here. You just have to keep doing what you're doing. Don't get caught up in the, the devotion or the levels. And, you know, it was really good that, you know, he took the time. So the mentorship, you know, didn't matter where, what background you came from. You saw yourself in each other. And that's makes the marking of what a team is about. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the era, unfortunately, got colored by PEDs. And I was in the thick of the PED era and, kind of knowingly during it and then certainly in retrospect and that was frustrating because as a player who just played clean you know 175 pounds soaking wet yeah i was gonna say to, you're you're right. not a poster <laughs> child for PED. <laughs> right. yeah right it just you know it, it, it was it was really hard because you were aware of it and you didn't want to spend energy trying to investigate it you had to do your job and still beat pitchers that were had these advantages yeah. and compete you know, you're not just competing against your opponent, you're competing against your teammate to a certain degree for that last outfield slot or for that last. So when they have an advantage over you, you know, it's, it's an unfair playing field. So that was, um, that was really frustrating. And I was with the players association as the, as the union rep. So I had to know work on these policies and uh, a real tall, tall order. So every era is marked by something. We just had a very dark period and, I, you know, I was proud that I had a you know good career and I, I did it what I believed to be in a way that was fair to my opponent and to the game. That was not the case for a lot of the star players in particular and many others. Mm -hmm. And uh, and I think that that just sort of made it hard to, you know, to, to, to kind of frame my career in a certain way because of just what I was competing against. You talked about when you first broke into baseball and professional baseball, putting your head down, staying silent, you know, letting your play do the talking. And you go from that, and then later in your career, you're the union rep. How did that process take form? What was the point of time that you didn't put your head down anymore, that, that, that you went on the side of decision-making and change and, and trying to make a, an impact for the players? Well, the union job was actually one of the best things that happened to me. And it happened because Tuffy Rhodes and a lot of players called me the, the rocket scientist <laughs> so because of my <laughs> Ivy League degree. Yeah. So they nominated me against my will, basically, like, you're going to be the alternate. We don't care. You're a smart guy. You don't have to say anything. You just do the research. And so I was right out of the gate my rookie year in the union 
very oh, wow. involved okay. quietly though. But I, I wasn't the, I was like the alternate and the other rep. And I think Mark Grace, I don't even remember. I know Schilling was in, in Philly. So we, so I kind of gained some confidence by doing that, but it wasn't necessarily like me rah-rah in the dugout. I first started thinking, wait a minute, I got to make sure I'm in the big leagues to keep this job, right? So that's always a tall order, uh, but that definitely helped. But I do think over time, sort of like in college, I, I didn't say much until I was like captain my junior year, mm-hmm. sort of like Jackie Robinson kind of laid low until year three, four. I kind of took that trajectory and uh, and that was cer- certainly different now, but then that was sort of how he did it. And uh, Willie Wilson, these veteran guys that were talking all the time, I had to wait my turn. So eventually, you know, I started to become more stable in my career, confident in my career, signed my long-term extension, play, being a starter. That certainly gives you more bandwidth to, to be able to speak. And I did a lot of my sort of quote activism through the Players Association and just fighting for player rights. And that open the door to understand unions and legislation and negotiation. So when I was out after the game, it was a sort of natural transition to therefore know how to engage on social issues and actually find solutions. Absolutely. Seventh inning stretch here of Unwritten Rules and Iowa Cubs podcast. Again, I'm your host, Alex Cohen. This is Doug Glanville, former Iowa Cup, former Chicago Cup, former Philadelphia Philly, former Ivy League scholar, Current professor, current marquee network host, ESPN host. I'm making sure that I'm getting all this right. Uh, but to listen to all past, present, and future episodes of Unwritten Rules, make sure you subscribe to Spotify, Apple, and Google Podcasts, as well as Amazon Music. Check us out online at iowacubs.com. You know, so you're talking about you being a union rep and entering that phase of your career. You spend time with the Chicago Cubs, then the Philadelphia Phillies, and you talked about earlier in the podcast um, some of the work that you did in Philadelphia with, with trying to get you know, African-American athletes involved in the game of baseball. Can, can you tell us a little bit what, what you were able to do in the city of Philadelphia and what that work entailed? Well, it was, it was challenging, and I think you cited earlier just the, the declining numbers of African-American players. Uh, there's, uh, you know, probably close to just under 8%. And you're talking, you know, errors that you mentioned, 70s, upwards 25, sometimes, you know, near 30%. So it's a different game. So there's always been more conversation since about the participation rates and how to instill that interest and passion, you know, the one that I found early on. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's challenging. And, and there's a lot of reasons. I don't think there is one clear, elegant answer to it. I think you have competing sports. You have uh, you have a system that tends to follow a certain level of wealth. So when people ran from the cities to the suburbs, and you know that weren't as diverse, or what you know, you sort of carry the game with you. You need a certain infrastructure. You need a certain commitment. You need certain resources. So you have a lot of things that impacted the you know, black community in particular that made baseball less accessible. I know there's been a lot of programs and efforts to try to uh, make it more available, but it's still very challenging because now you have other sports and other interests that are picking up steam. So, um, but so my direct effort was in Philadelphia, whether working with certain programs, you know, I mentioned Sharon Robinson having a breaking barriers program where we went into schools or the, the um, boys and girls clubs, you know, we, we definitely tried to do a lot, but it's, it's a tall order because you see the disparity of resources and the inequity 
that plague certain communities of color. And since, you know, in our country in general, generally these community colors are cities or around cities. That's, yeah. that's sort of our, our storyline. And if the cities get stripped of resources, then it kind of follows suit that, that there's going to be a decline in certain aspects. And baseball is one of the first to go. You know, basketball, hey, I can go to the playground, grab a ball and a hoop, and I'm and, good. And, and hoop yeah. and, and run fives and, and, and play pickup games. Yeah, yeah. Right, pickup games. And, and, uh, and I think it's also the outcomes of the sport. When you get drafted, if you're that good in the NBA, NFL, you're generally going to the top of the sport. You're right yeah. there. You're either going to, quote, AAA, the G Leagues and these things, and right to the top. Uh, baseball, it's, you know, you go through this minor league system and then you deal with middle management that may or may not be favorable or frustrating. You know, I can tell you, I can't tell you how many people said to me, Hey, um, you know, when are you going to be in the pros? And I was already in the minors. For like three it's years, like, I'm right? a professional baseball player. <laughs> I signed my contract. I, I'm getting paid to play baseball. Thereby, I am a professional baseball right, player. Right. Thank you very much. <laughs> right. So it was. It was one of. It was a challenge to, to kind of. You, you kind of fall off the earth after you get drafted. Now it's a little different now. A lot of the first rounders move fairly quickly, but I had four and a half years in the minors and, and a year and a half at every level, a Triple A Iowa and and all that. So I think it was good for me in a lot of ways, but it took me a while. And a lot of guys get lost in that shuffle. And and when you don't have management that's as in tune with what is a unique experience in the Bach experience. Yeah. That could be isolating. And and we talked earlier about the importance of just seeing yourself and others and in leadership. And uh, that that's important to feel a sense of belonging. And, and that's a big part of what can affect you. I went to Puerto Rico and I felt so incredibly connected there because I felt people were so in tune with my experience. It was a, uh, it was really unexpected actually uh, being from sort of mainland United States. Here's a, a Commonwealth of, uh, part of the U.S. itself, but had a very different cultural experience, yeah. and uh, and so that that was very eye-opening too. Yeah, I mean, uh, Puerto Rico and Teaneck, New Jersey. I mean, they are part of the same Commonwealth, but I, I can't say that they share. Uh, yeah, it, it's not a, the same experience. You go from one place to the other. So, yeah, I, I want you to talk a little about your, your your time in Puerto Rico. Now, you know, where were you at that point of your career where you decided to go down to Puerto Rico? Um, going down there, what were your expectations? And you talked about how they surpassed your expectations. How did it do so? Well, I'll tell you, that was transformational. And it came about really interesting. Uh, there's a coach, uh, Tom Gamboa. Uh, mm-hmm. he, he, I think he made some pathway through Iowa at various times. Yeah. And his, his claim to fame was he was the first base coach of the Royals when they were playing the White Sox in Chicago. And two fans ran on the field and attacked him. Uh, in the coach's box. So that that's a Google, Google, so uh, check it out. But he was one of the more positive people I ever met, met. And he was a head coach. He was a coach in Mayaguez, Puerto Rico. And I'd come from Iowa, 95, really tough season. It was the strike year. I, I was, you know, holding out with, you know, I had no choice as a minor leaguer, basically yeah. started. The, it was just a long year. I came to Iowa, like in May, missed half, you know, two thirds of the season, it was, it was a tough thing. And then uh, Ron Clark was the manager in Iowa. And if you could take oil and water and then find out something else that could divide you and make you totally opposites, that was Ron Clark. That was it. Yeah. I mean, we were diametrically, experientially complete opposites. And uh, it was not a good experience. And so I knew that at the end of the season, I was going to have to find a way to continue to play. So I went, they sent me to instructional league after Iowa. And that's kind of 
tough because I was 24 or five and instructional league is kind of 18 to 20 young guys. Yeah, it, It's guys and, who have been drafted who have been signed internationally that the organization wants to see more of. Right. Exactly. So I, it, you know, the ego is a little tough. Like, wait a minute, I'm like a triple a player. And I remember I met Kerry Wood there. And so it was tough, but I had to be positive and you know, Bo was there and he saw me work hard and said, Hey, you're coming to me with me to Puerto Rico. At first, I was going to send you to a place that was going to be really tough, but I want you to go here because I think we could win with you. And we did, you know, and so he brought me there and the vote of confidence, the connection to a manager that I felt had my back and supported me and going to an environment where culturally I felt, you know, safe and in an environment of support in this sort of vast land of color, people of color, it was really important to me. So I, I, it changed my, changed my life. It certainly changed my baseball career. I uh, won the MVP, that award. I won the all-star team. We lost in the finals. The next year we won the championship. It was, it well, was Tom was right. He could win with you. So he I could mean, win I, with us. Yeah, he did. And I, I did, did my part. And so that was validating, not only as a professional saying I belong because they're playing against a lot of big leagues. I, I edged out Roberto Alomar Jr. Uh, for the MVP, you know, uh, I'm sorry, Roberto Alomar, Sandy's Jr. Yeah. Uh, and, which is crazy because he even quoted in the paper, he said, I'm surprised they voted for him given I'm from here. <laughs> but it was just one of those surreal moments. So everything went right there. And, and that magic never left me. It carried right to my minor league career. And then finally, when I got called up. So that tells you what, how important it is when you feel supported, you have mentors, you have people who understand your experience and respect it. You have people that may look like you in positions of power that you can see it possible. Uh, it, it's not that people who don't look like you can't be those things, but there's something to be said, given our history as a country and the exclusivity and the exclusion and the why behind that exclusion and direct experiences I've had to really circle that this is still a major challenge, despite Jackie Robinson in 1947, that it made a difference for my vision for what was possible. And, uh, and every, I, you know, I believe everybody deserves that vision. And, and that's exactly what Jackie Robinson talked about, just that first class citizenship for all. You talk about the experience that you had in Puerto Rico, and, and there are still experiences like that you know there's the puerto rican winter league there's the mexican baseball league there's the australian baseball league uh they're bringing baseball back to the olympics for the first time in 30 years so there is there there's this obvious movement to trying to get more diversity back in the game of baseball do you think it's working i think there i think some aspects are working in the sense of well if you look at the ceiling rule right which is a mandate 1999 that teams have to interview minority candidates for all jobs related to their organization in baseball. I think that has actually brought in numbers. Not, not, it hasn't done as well ownership top level, and that's certainly a challenge and a problem, but it has done very well because, and baseball frames it in an excellent way. They don't say, oh, we're just charitably tokenizing people. We yeah. know that we have a blind spot to all the qualified people out there. And we've, and generationally, we've compounded that disadvantage. So we want to do right by that. Yeah. That's a good, that's a good message. And I think that's completely accurate. So given that, I think it's opened up some doors to create diversity in leadership, which, which matters to have certain sensitivities about what we're facing, whether as a country or as a sport. And then within that, that sort of helps to see, you know, have the sort of images of what's possible for those 
at the lower ranks. So now baseball as a sport still has these hurdles, whether it's the game pacing and as we mentioned before, automatic someone, runner on second base to start yeah, like, extra innings. And like what's happening here, right? So, the, the right, hitter and and pitcher. Yeah, I mean, there's a yeah. lot there, there's a, a lot. lot of issues to talk about in baseball, full encompassing. Yeah, so they have to ask the you know, is this the sport we want to have from an entertainment value and all these other components to it. And, and so there's definitely an, a more concerted effort. I know Major League Baseball has the, like a social responsibility office that tries to pay attention. Tyrone Brooks has a, a great, uh, you know, sort of ambassadorship program, uh, these sort of programs that help encourage these possibilities. So, but you have to keep your foot on that accelerator. You, you do, because there is a lot of disillusionment or concern or feeling like baseball won't be welcoming. And I know they're making efforts to, to address that because really it, it's an American sport that celebrates. If you look on paper, you see a lot of diversity in baseball, yeah. a different kind of diversity, but it's a, you know, international and, and I, it has great potential to lead in that regard. Yeah. You talked about the international diversity. I mean, when you have, I'm just bringing up one player in Shohei Otani, who is from Japan, he throws a hundred mile per hour fastballs. He hits 450 foot bombs. Um, we need more players like that. Uh, how can we get that? Wow. I mean, Otani is just um, awe-inspiring to watch. And I'm fortunate to hear his about him when he was 18, 19 from the player that uh, integrated. He was the first Japanese player to play in the big leagues. Yeah. Uh, Masanori Murikami. So he, he was in San Francisco and I got a chance to interview him and he told me that you got to watch out for this Otani guy. And, and now I completely understand it. You had an inside look early on. Wow. So, yeah. so yeah, I, I think when the game is really attractive, you just get more players that might be these super athletes to engage. Otherwise they go to other sports. So that is, uh, you know, a tall order at times, but when baseball is drawing people in and you have images like Otani that can inspire other Japanese players and, then you you get that that chance, but you you you're so thankful that he chose baseball and and baseball had there was a time where baseball was the king right number one and and yeah. had that type of access so um, I'm I'm hoping they'll keep you know working at it and try to recapture that because you want anybody to choose baseball first if they can yeah I said try to get more players like Shohei Otani it, it's difficult they don't fall off of trees just just guys who can well, right, for who sure. could throw throw a hundred and hit four hundred and fifty foot bombs I mean that's just it's a transcendent talent but just hopefully a player like Otani will show players baseball youth globally that hey I want to do this this is fun again this is cool so um I, I'm along with you I hope hopefully that uh makes a, a profound impact. Doug Lanville here on Unwritten Rules in Iowa Cubs podcast. Uh, this has been an important episode, obviously airing on Jackie Robinson Day. Um, to end the episode, I want to make it a little bit lighter. You came here through Iowa. Uh, you you know, made your debut with the Chicago Cubs. You played 212 games with the Iowa Cubs. You were from New Jersey. You go to college in Pennsylvania. You, you play baseball professionally in North Carolina and Florida. As most people can gather, you look at a map, that's all on the East Coast. <laughs> you find out you're going out to Iowa. <laughs> what are your thoughts? Had you ever been to Iowa? Have you ever heard of Iowa? Could you pick out <laughs> Iowa on a map? Like, what's going through your mind? 
Yeah, I had never been to Iowa. That's absolutely true. Now the minor leagues, you know, it gets you across the country. So I, you know, I'd never been to Arizona uh, since uh, I guess college. I played against Arizona State, so this was all foreign territory. So, um, so yeah, I was. I didn't know where it was on a map. I had a pretty good idea. Uh, definitely into geography, but yeah, I didn't. I didn't know what to expect at all. And so arriving there. And as I mentioned, the first time we got to Iowa, I was already late, late arrival because of the strike. Yeah. So I was really scrambling to try to figure this place out. So I lived in West Des Moines. My roommate was Brooks Kieschnick for a little while, then Mike Carter, who won a batting title in Iowa. And, uh, and we just kind of figured it out. And pretty quickly, it just became so endearing. You know, I just got to, you know, I, I was bold, though. That's why I'm very much one in Rome. So I went to the Iowa State Fair, like both years. Yeah. <laughs> so, saw the the giant pigs and the corn and i bought all these like melted candles that we shaped and stuff uh i was just i got into it you know i really did and the fans man they, they were just so fantastic at sec taylor I mean, we we were you know very popular selling out packed house and i just always loved the positivity of the fans uh it was just a really welcoming comfortable place to play who and and people who loved the sport and you know knew it really well and were students of the game. So that was awesome. I mean, it was a great place to play. So I didn't, I, although I didn't know much, I didn't try to have too many preconceived notions about what it would mean. And I was fortunate that the head tennis coach at Drake was a friend of mine, Mark Riley. Uh, yeah. And Mark, Mark uh, was at Penn as the assistant tennis coach when I was there and my roommate was on the tennis team. So I got to know him and he kind of helped me, you know, get the lay of the land. So Iowa ended up being, you know, such a great experience for me and always thankful to, you know, have that experience. So I, I think I popped in, you know, not super long ago, but it's been a minute. <laughs> okay. Uh, you talk about going to the Iowa State Fair. As a professional athlete, they have food items that aren't the professional athlete diet. Um, they, they aren't fuel for you to go out there and play nine innings. Uh, but but they're known for their fried food experience. Did you try anything at the Iowa State Fair that you remember? Be like, I have never seen this before, <laughs> but I'm gonna buy it and put it and eat it. So I I don't know if I remember what I ate. I'm sure I did though. I mean, I would try anything. I don't know if there's fried dough or whatever. But fried Oreo, fried <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I was adventurous, so I probably would have absolutely tried uh, anything. But yeah, I mean, it was it was a great time, and I remember going doing an autograph session in a town. I'm not even sure I remember the name, but it was uh, the Christopher family who's in Iowa and Kathy Christopher who came to all the games with her, her dad who owned a memorabilia store. And I remember they said, well, you're never going to find it. So you got to meet us at a nearby McDonald's and we'll explain. And when we got there, I followed them and then they turned left into there was no road. It was like a cornfield. I was like, seriously, this is like out of a movie. And we came out of the cornfield on the other side. And there was this like four block by four block town. It had like a bank, a school. And like a town hall and that was like the whole town and uh and i was just like this is just the authentic experience so uh good memories good times and really important part of of uh, being able to make my jump to to the big league so very thankful for that so i was on major league baseball stage this year they're bringing a major league baseball game to field of dreams um have you ever been to field of dreams uh will you be going to that game and you know how how cool do you think it is that that Major League Baseball is going 30 years back in the archives to, you know, right now the site of, you know, baseball at its purest form, which many would agree would be, you know, Field of Dreams? Yeah, I think uh, 
I'm glad they're just being really creative and thinking ways to engage not only the future fans and the fans that are today, but also going back and connecting to some of the iconic imagery and stories of baseball. And Field of Dreams certainly fits into that category, uh, you know, just as Bridges of Madison County, my, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which was big when I was in Iowa. So, um, yeah, I, so I, I, I think they're really coming up with some great ideas. I know they had it at uh, one of the military bases. You know, they're just trying to and Williamsport. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Williamsport, exactly. So that's uh, connecting the fabric of the game through so much of its history. And I hope they keep expanding that and making it just welcoming for, for all people because it's amazing how many people connect through baseball and are frontline fans that may lay in the shadows. And when you do things like that and you make it tangible and accessible in different communities, it makes a big difference. Will you be going to the Field of Dreams game? I don't know if I'm there. I, I don't know what ESPN has up in store, but okay. uh, uh, you know, if I'm whether I'm on that game, I, I don't know. I have no idea. <laughs> but uh, if invited, I certainly would. You know, obviously pandemic free. I know we're all dealing with this this crazy yeah. time. Yeah. But um, but I'm sure at some point, uh, you know, I'm going to make it out there again. Yeah, you say that you uh you, you talked off air. You have, you have kids. I mean, um, are are they into baseball? Is that something that you know? Would you take them to Cooperstown? Would you take them to Field of Dreams? Are they into that type of stuff? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I have I have four kids, and I you know I don't think I mean they they are definitely aware of baseball, and they know I'm like Daddy's working on baseball, and, <laughs> and they certainly know my career. I did take them to Cooperstown when they were younger. Uh, it's a little now it's, you know, we need to revisit. It's one of the first things I'm thinking of like, gosh, it'd be nice to do after this pandemic is kind of quieter. Just like fresh air, go up, like be safe and, and then see some baseball history. Yeah. That's the way to do it. So, but, um, but yeah, like, you know, know, my son plays a little bit and my daughter, she's probably the one that sort of watches the most. And uh, my other daughters are, are younger and certainly know, like very aware of it, start asking questions. So it's cool to hear them thinking about, sports and asking those questions about what my career meant and, and the things that I'm doing now. And I, yeah, I hope they, you know, they don't have to play or anything, but if they just have a love for the game or, uh, or at least like being able to understand it and what it means, then I'm, I'm happy with that. I hope they'll chart their own path. And as Jackie Robinson showed us, you know, you can be pioneers in anything and, and you could set the tone and whether they go into that or, or anything else, as long as they have that spirit, and that passion, then, you know, I'd be really happy. I feel like I did my part. <laughs> you said your son plays a little bit. Are you finding yourself being coach or fan? Like what, what, what side of the, the envelope are you on? Well, I, I actually did coach for a, a few years, oh, cool. uh, probably four or five. And my daughter was on his team also. So they, it was fun because my daughter was because of Jackie and knowing his history and watching video and eventually watching 42, she, all she wanted to do was steal bases. So that's what she did. She just stole bases all the time uh, and walked. That was her <laughs> thing. So, um, she, she's so, an OBP, OBP player. Total OBP, <laughs> yes. She, she was, didn't hit any home runs, but she was the two outcome player. And stole okay. Bases. So she, yeah. So I think my, you know, my son uh, definitely, it was cool to watch them play. And he did eventually win a championship the next year. So that was kind of fun. Nice. Yeah. So I, 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 it's, it's part of our life, but we, I'm into a lot of things and, they know, as you listed earlier, I'm wearing a ton of hats, <laughs> including dad and husband. So I'm, I'm having a blast and it's good to see the kids like settling into some of their interests. My, my daughter does gymnastics. She loves it. And, That's awesome. and, you know, we just keep rolling. 
That's awesome. All right, Doug, one final question before we let you duck out of here. And we briefly talked on a Facebook Live last year, and you talked about your time with the I-Cubs and your route to the big leagues. And I can recall you had a vivid description of your highlights in an I-Cubs uniform, and in particular, your call-up to the big leagues. Can you give your our listeners a brief synopsis of some of your fondest or memorable moments in your 200-plus games in Des Moines? Wow, there's uh, there's there's so many moments. I mean, I, I think of the... Um... Well, first of all, we were really good the second year in particular. And uh, I remember some of the big games against Buffalo, the Bisons, they were just a nightmare. And they had some good players like Brian Giles and Chad OJ. Um, wow. So, you know, I think we were really good that year. And whether it was Terry Shumpert's of the world, you know, really good players, Mike Hubbard, uh, it was it was just a good thing. And I think about what's cool about AAA and Iowa, I think back to a lot of the teammates of mine that I came up with. Yeah. And I was like the culmination of that minor league experience of where it's like, wow, I, I started in 91 with this guy and we're kind of team Ozzie Timmons, you know, and, and here we are together just trying to break through, you know, those memories are all sol- solidly placed in Iowa for me. Um, and, and just, you know, sort of represented. And, and yeah, we had trips where we were flying back to Des Moines and I remember, uh, it was, the weather was so bad. We were grounded in St. Louis Oof. and we ended up sleeping in the terminal. And next to us was the women's soccer team, the U S women's soccer team or many members of it because they were stuck also. So to this day, I'm very cool because of Iowa friends with Brandy Chastain and Tiffany Milbrand and all these players. Wow. Um, that was, I credit Iowa hundred percent for, um, for a random airport stop random. in St. Louis. Yeah. Totally random. The TWA days. Right. So, um, so yeah, I, I just, I have great memories. A lot of it's around, you know, the fan experience and just kind of coming into my own as a player, gaining that final leg of confidence that I can do this, I can make it. And, and just building that bridge to, to doing that. So uh, there, you know, there's no Chicago cub experience without the Iowa stop. So uh, I'll always remember that. Well, that, that's a great note to finish up on. And if you ever want to come back to Des Moines and visit, come to an Iowa Cubs game, you have a seat right next to me in the booth whenever you want to come. So, uh, Doug, I really appreciate you joining us. Uh, this was a really important episode, and I think that you, um, you you gave us some great experience and insight to you know what fans want to know and how important not only Jackie Robinson is, but Jackie Robinson is today in 2021 so we we really appreciate it all right alex thank you so much for having me and and uh saying goodbye to the iowa faithful (laughs) thanks so much with doug glanville it's another episode of unwritten rules and iowa cubs podcast again subscribe unwritten rules on spotify apple and google Podcasts, as well as amazon music and make sure to check us out online at iowacubs.com until next time i'm alex cohen thanks for listening guys